Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, or you have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. If you leave questions for me on other videos or, you know, send them to me by Twitter or whatever, as I'm always going on here, uh, I'm probably not going to get them, probably not going to put them in the queue. Uh, it's, it's a simple ask. Email me or leave them in the comments of these Q&A videos. Okay, thanks guys. I need to say more than once or twice, so I'm going to repeat or put in my videos uh, from time to time here that I am offering a consulting service. And that means you can contact me by email, phone, Zoom chat, however you want to, and we can uh, interact and I can assist or help or offer advice or direction in uh, culty situations, coercive situations, helping people recover from those kinds of situations. How do you deal with somebody who's in a cult? How do you talk to them? How do you get them out? What do you do? Uh, what do you not do? And that's, that's a really important question as well as what do you do? And of course, you know, all the content on my channel here helps answer those questions. But if you want some one-on-one -on -one with me, you can get it. And that's offered by me as a professional service. So if you want that, then feel free to reach out to me and let's talk. All right. That being said, let's get on with your questions. Steve Wood. Did Hubbard create an additional language for Scientology as just another form of coercive control? In other words, would you say that all those words that only make sense in Scientology are just another way to control those within its grasp? For example, there's a famous interview in Australia where Tom Cruise is talking to a journalist and tells the journalist to put your manners in now. No one outside of Scientology speaks like that. Then there's all the acronyms. What do you think? Steve, I think this is a great question and it gives me the opportunity to talk about uh, one of Robert J. Lifton's uh, criteria for thought reform and control, and that is the point of loaded language. And what is loaded language? Well, you know, the folks at Wikipedia, somebody was kind enough to actually put a whole page together on Lifton's eight points. Uh, this is, of course, from um, the eight criteria for thought reform from the book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. And of course, thought reform is changing people's minds in a forceful way. It's reforming their thinking. And by forceful, we don't necessarily mean taking a hammer to their head, but we mean using coercive means or deceptive means or abusive means even in order to get people to say or do what you want them to say or do and think the way you want them to think rather than the way that they would organically, naturally think and choose to do things. This is, this is where it comes down to. And this is why specialized language in any field is not a problem. It's okay that there be specialized language. That's not loaded language. You know, electric, electricians, um, physicists, uh, neuroscientists, almost any field in science and the arts has specialized words or definitions of words that mean certain things for their area so that they can communicate with each other in those fields and uh, have that kind of shorthand in that communication. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's a very organic, very necessary thing for us to be able to create and evolve ideas to be able to define and redefine terms and come up with new terms for things. So nothing nefarious there. I really want to differentiate where does the bad stuff come into this. And it comes in when 
you have loaded language. And what does that mean? It means that the, as right out of the definition here, the group interprets or uses words and phrases in new ways so that often the outside world does not understand. This jargon consists of thought terminating cliches, or what we call thought-stopping cliches, which serve to alter members' thought processes to conform to the group's way of thinking. And that's where things get tricky, is thought-terminating or thought-stopping cliches. Statements, and what are we talking about here? Well, it just so happens there's another little section here on this, and I'm going to read to you from some of it. Uh, the book actually popularized the term thought-terminating cliché. This is a commonly used phrase or folk wisdom, sometimes used to quell cognitive dissonance. So what's cognitive dissonance? Well, that's where you are faced with opposing or mutually exclusive ideas or concepts or behaviors. Even in yourself, this can happen with yourself. It doesn't have to be externally caused in order for it to create the noise in your head, the discomfort that comes from these two things don't reconcile. This doesn't work. Somehow this is bumping up against something else in my thinking or these information, these pieces of information don't go together, but I'm being forced or told to understand this so that it does make sense. And our minds and imaginations are brilliant at making things that don't make any sense. We're good at making them make sense. We're really good at it. Um, and the the process, the noise, the disturbance that's created in your mind when you are faced with that kind of dilemma is called cognitive dissonance. Um, Thought-terminating thought cliches are used as a ready-made recipe or easy remedy for when you're encountering that kind of cognitive dissonance in a group, let's say, like a cult, like Scientology. Um, Though the cliched phrase in and of itself may be valid in certain contexts, its application as a means of dismissing dissent or justifying fallacious logic is what makes it thought terminating. In other words, it's, these are phrases or ideas or concepts that stop a person from thinking. They don't contribute to a conversation. They shut it down. Ah. Uh, Okay, you know, there's some concept or idea communicated that you go, oh, you know, labels fit this all the time, which is why labels are used as thought-stopping cliches. Now, let me give you a couple of examples off the page here. Um, examples include everything happens for a reason. That's a thought-stopping cliche. You don't have to think anymore. Oh, everything stops. Everything happens for a reason. Okay, great. You know, why? Because I said so. <laughs> I mean, that's about as much logic as sits behind that statement of everything happens for a reason. Well, what's the reason? I mean, clearly that would be the next logical question, but a lot of people that you and I know don't do that. They stop thinking when you hear something like that. God has a plan. That's a thought-stopping cliche. Maybe it's true. Maybe in some contexts it's even useful or helpful to somebody because they gain some idea of somebody's in control, somebody's in charge, somebody's got this under control somehow, um, but it shuts down thinking because you don't know the plan. <laughs> you don't know the reason. You got nothing, and you can't carry on a conversation or continue a thought when there's just it's just going off a cliff. 
There's nothing there. It's just a big empty void of, of knowledge. Um, I'm the parent. That's why. <laughs> There's an appeal to authority, right? Because I said so. Because uh, he's got a PhD. Because, you know, fill in the blank of stop the conversation. Um, it's a matter of opinion. You only live once. We'll have to agree to disagree. You know, these kind of like things that just shut stuff down. Lift, here's a quote from Lifton on this, the guy who originally wrote about this. Um, and this is a little academic, but quote, the language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought terminating cliche. The most far reaching and complex of human problems are compressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive sounding phrases easily memorized and easily expressed. These become the start and finish of any ideological analysis. End of quote. Okay. We find here examples like in 1984, the George Orwell's classic, we find Newspeak. And Orwell knew about this stuff and talked about this stuff himself as a writer and as a political analyst and ideologue. Um, Newspeak is designed to eliminate the ability to express unorthodox thoughts. Um, Algis Huxley's Brave New World uses thought-terminating cliches in a more conventional manner, most notably regarding the drug Soma, as well as modified versions of real-life platitudes, such as a doctor a day keeps the gym jams away. <laughs> you know, these little things we tell ourselves, they go, ah. You know, these very reductionist ideas that really, you know, are very questionable as to their validity or use, but it helps us to simplify things, to not have to burn up our, our energy reserves and in, in brain power trying to think about everything all the time. We have a hard time with that, right? It's tiring. It's actually taxing on your body's resources to have to think a lot. And so the brain has come up with, and we readily agree with these kind of mechanisms that people will give us in order to reduce our, you know, the taxing, the, the energy usage of our um, of our body's energy. And uh, that's a kind of a yeah, kind of goes to the biology of it, really. But but it's true, you know, who wants to be tired out thinking about everything all the time? There's an awful lot of things in our modern world of, of complexity and technology to get wrapped up in. And so you've only got so much attention and so much time to give, so much energy to give to any one thing. So it makes sense that we would seek these kind of mental shortcuts. This isn't some kind of, oh my God, how do people, they're so stupid for doing this. It's like, no, we all do this. But the problem is that when these mechanisms, these thought-stopping cliches are used to stop thinking and take the authority and his word or her word and run with that. And it's somebody like an L. Ron Hubbard, who is not an authority on anything that he ever preached about as a Scientology leader. He doesn't know anything about the mind, psychology, the brain, the body, emotions, how all this stuff actually works. Hubbard didn't know anything about that stuff. But he was able to fool people with clever language and thought-stopping thought cliches. He was able to fool them into thinking that he had tapped into some hidden reservoir of knowledge. And this gave him a superior uh, level of intellect and spiritual perception. And when you buy into something like that and you start assigning that kind of power to somebody else... 
then be pretty prepared to be dominated and controlled by that person because that's why they're doing it. And that's what cult leaders are all about. And this is why loaded language is such a powerful mechanism of control because you are quite literally controlling not only what a person thinks, but you can also control what they are forbidden to think. Words, phrases, ideas, whole concepts that are just forbidden. You're just not allowed to. And you can control people that way. And that is uh, absolutely why L. Ron Hubbard adopted it as a, as a mechanism in Scientology. And it wasn't even something, you know, these are, again, one of these things where you don't have to do it in a premeditated way. These cult leaders just roll right into it. It just sort of organically rolls out. They go, oh, there's a, there's a turn of phrase I can use. Like in Scientology, a thought terminating cliche was, that's N theta. In fact, that's probably one of the most powerful thought-stopping cliches in Scientology because I talk about, you know, well, here's a whole area where you can't think. You can't talk about this. You're not, this is not allowed to be talked about or even thought about. If you label something as N theta in Scientology, that's it. It shuts down any more thinking or talking on that subject. Leah's documentary, for example, my channel, Mike Rinder's book, Aaron Smith Levin's channel, Tony Ortega's reporting, all of that, all of it is simply labeled, that's N theta. And in Scientology, if something is N theta, you don't listen to it. That means it is lies, vicious, destructive, deceptive lies, uh, premeditated, on purpose, you know, uh, conspiratorial even, it's N theta. It's bad for you. It's not, it's not information that will in any way be conducive or productive to your good feeling or thinking. That's how Scientologists think about that. And if you, we all have our own versions or ideas about what is and isn't acceptable to us to hear or listen to or talk about. All of us do. I don't think very many of us want to have deep intellectual conversations about the Turner Diaries, you know, which are some of the most racist writings that have ever existed, or the elder, you know, Protocols of Zion. Who wants to get into deep analysis of that? It's racist bullshit. We can just kind of park that. Yet, if you use that kind of thinking to control people's behavior and way of thinking, See, because what I just described were choices people make, right? I mean, I can, you can go have a deep discussion about the Turner Diaries if you want to. I'm not telling you not to. I'm not telling you it's forbidden. I'm saying, I'm using it as an example of something people probably don't want to talk about a whole lot and would be happy to, to label as, well, that's just racist and I'm not going to deal with it. So we all have these things. There's nothing nefarious about that. And I hope I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not using uh, examples that are too highly charged to demonstrate this point, but... This is, you know, we all make choices in our lives as to what we do and don't want to deal with or talk about or think about. So again, nothing wrong with that. But when somebody else is dictating that to you and they're using these kind of things in a deceptive way to fool you into thinking this is good for you, this is helpful for you, that, you know, all of this stuff over here is N theta or it's my way or the highway, right, kind of thinking or demands for compliance, that's when we're into, you know, the cult territory. Okay, and coercive control and that kind of thing. So there you go. Michael Yoder, 
I was listening to a group auditing session by LRH and have a question about trance induction and control on a broader level. At the beginning of the session, people were relaxed and giggling at different commands. Talk to the front wall. Okay, now talk to the back wall. Okay, now talk to the right wall. Okay. And it went on and on with different commands over and over. What I noticed from the group was that the more they complied with the commands, the giggling stopped quickly and everyone spoke in unison. It was disturbing, like something out of the book 1984. What happens for people in coercive situations with this type of trance induction and control? Not just with Scientology, but with other group situations. All right, Michael, thank you very much for this question. And you've focused here on what happens in your question, what happens for people in coercive situations with this type of transinduction and control. So I'm going to focus on that rather than on the, the actual mechanisms of control necessarily that are being exerted against a person there. In other words, we're going to look at the effects rather than, than causes, although we'll, we'll kind of balance both. Um, and I'm going to use in my answer here um, some writing from a man named Hugh Harley, who had a pretty good analysis of large group awareness trainings uh, on the Internet here. And I'll put a, a link to, this, uh, to his post on this because the whole article he wrote is actually pretty good. And what you're dealing with here is you're dealing with uh, compliance mechanisms, right? You're dealing with a way to get everybody on the same page, everybody in the same boat, and knowing and feeling that way as, as a group. That's what Scientology group processing is all about. And uh, with the added expectation, as we've talked about before in Scientology, that you are primed through indoctrination that is done beforehand as to what the end result or goal of this is supposed to be. And so everybody is also on the same page on where they're supposed to take this. And they know they're not done until this sort of relief and euphoria and all that kind of happens. And people can make that happen within themselves and learn how to do that or can kind of goose themselves into it based on the social compliance factor. Everybody else is doing it, so I guess I need to do it too kind of thing. Even if it's operating kind of semi or subconsciously, it's really quite interesting. It's not like you have to have these ideas of manipulating yourself as fully formed ideas. This can be emotional manipulation that you're doing to yourself in order to comply with what's going on with the rest of the group and be in agreement with them and be a good member or that kind of thing, you know. It doesn't have to be that you're knowingly, premeditatively uh, fooling yourself. That's, ve that's very rarely how it works. Most of the time, you're kind of going with the flow thinking, oh, I'm in this too. This is all good. This is what I, I'm, I'm really experiencing this. When in fact, had you been left alone, you, you know, you would not have been experiencing that. It's only because you're kind of riffing off what everybody else in the room is experiencing. And this is a very, very powerful influencer on our behavior is what's everybody else in the room doing? What's everybody else in the room thinking, saying? And if you're not on the same page as them, you're going to feel some discomfort within yourself. Uh, you're certainly at least going to notice it. Okay, now, and how dedicated, how much emotional investment there is beforehand in what the group is saying and thinking, and it is what determines um, whether you're going to be able to just brush that off and not care what everybody else thinks, or whether it's going to be very important to you that you be part of and comply with the general group. Okay, um, we call, you know, he refers to this in the article here as communal reinforcement. 
uh, believing that something we are taught is true because we're surrounded by other people who already believe it, or at least we think that's the case. And when everybody in the room is riffing off everybody else in the room, and nobody's feeling it, but everybody ha- feels like they have to think it because of the priming and the indoctrination, you see, it can be really wild what people can do. Really wild. Okay, so that's kind of part of the picture here, pretty big part of it, actually. But um, what happens with people in this, unfortunately, is that they kind of get into a frame of mind or a headspace or, or buy more into a belief set that this kind of group control activity or group coercive activity is good for them. It's something that they need to be part of or should continue to do. And, um, and again, there's more fallacious thinking in here, right? There's wishful thinking, right? A tendency to see what we want to see. There's confirmation bias, which is the tendency to see what we expect to see, what, what we expect to experience. It's not just visually, it's, it's all of our senses and all of our experiences contribute to confirmation bias. And there is, um, well, there's a couple other points that Hugh makes in his article, which are pretty good, and I'll leave you to read them. But uh, the bottom line is it reinforces or can all by itself create and then reinforce this sort of self-sealing idea that the group is all and everything that's happening outside the group or, you know, that this group has some kind of special line in on the truth or some special technique or power or ability. And you need to be part of it. You need to be plugged into it because, wow, don't you feel great now? And if you think what I'm saying here is just a bunch of nonsense and gobbledygook and this doesn't really happen to people, well, it happens to people all the time. And these large group awareness trainings, this is EST, this is Landmark Forum, this is uh, Scientology, this is so many groups. Uh, Amway, this is all the MLMs. This is why they love doing their group rallies and and conventions because this is what it's all about is getting everybody super hyped up and on the same page and and going with the flow and 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 realizing their full potential and all this other claptrap nonsense which is all designed and let's let's get to the brass tacks of this which is all of these manipulation techniques these feel good techniques this let's get everybody on the same page and agreeing with each other and agreeing with the leadership and agreeing with the dogma all of this is designed to, to get you into a less critically thinking, less skeptical, less aware state of mind, less independent state of mind might be a better way of putting it, so that you will continue outside of the seminars and group setting to comply with what you're told to do. And that's the hypnotic element of this or the trance induction element of this is by lowering awareness, increasing subconscious you know, control, you are feeding right into a person's uh, sort of base core beliefs and ideas and, and motivations and influences. And you're planting seeds there of this group is all, this leadership is everything, this dogma is is all there is that you need to know or, or comply with or be part of. And it makes people more susceptible to even more of it because they then start craving more and then more and then more. 
and they will give over money and resources and time and energy. And we see this with Avatar, we see this with Landmark, we see this with Scientology. You know, these are really big, obvious examples. Tony Robbins, total fraud, right? Total fraudster. Nexium with all their NLP nonsense, right? The neuro-linguistic programming stuff, which is also feeding into this. I mean, all these things are just mechanisms of control, compliance, and um, negating or reducing your ability to think, your ability to be skeptical, your ability to question what's going on. That's kind of, at an individual level, that's what's happening there. And it takes, and the more you expose yourself to this kind of thing, the, the, the more habituated a person becomes to it, the easier time the cult leader or the Tony Robbins fraudster has of, uh, of controlling you next time. You know, you're, you're becoming more and more used to it, more and more willing to comply. And that's what that's all about. And it's not to say that every single, you know, group or group setting or group situation where we're all getting on the same page about something is destructive to your good thinking, because it's not. I'm talking here about people who are doing these kinds of activities with malice of forethought. I'm talking about people who are premeditatedly, you know, they're planning on doing this to you and then take advantage of the state that they get you in to get money, resources, sex, et cetera, out of you, okay? Uh, this is not, you know, the, the same kind of thing, the similar, maybe adjacent kind of thinking or, or experience is had in good ways too at, say, concerts or movies or, you know, places we all get together and get on the same page, sporting events sometimes, You'll get everybody on the same page, and it really is quite something when everybody is. You get a wave going. You get the group all doing something together, and people really can get into it. And it can feel quite empowering as an individual to be part of something like that, and you really start feeling the, the esprit de corps of the group, the, the group thinking, feeling, and emotional uh, power of that is, is quite heady. And that's not nefarious. There's nothing wrong with any of that. We, we, we pay good money to go experience that kind of thing. But when you have people of nefarious intent, you know, who use that to control you, bring down your guard, get you to open up, get you to pay up, um, that's where things get off the rails. So... I don't know. There's some ideas for you on that. You let me know what you think. And also uh, check out that link in the description section to this video. Peter Putz, I've always wondered how Scientologists think about body thetans. We all are thetans, and we have bodies. So far, so good. We're also all infested by body thetans, which are thetans that are somehow not in a very good state. Thetans have lived for a very long time, so we have basically done everything. Created civilizations, destroyed them, yada yada. So, shouldn't we also assume that at some point along our track, we had been in this degraded state of being a body thetan? Shouldn't I come up with memories that a gazillion lifetimes ago, I had been a body thetan, infesting the little toe of Leonardo da Vinci or something? Or let's say I give birth. Couldn't it be that the thetan running my little baby is the body thetan I expelled last year from my liver? Would a Scientologist think about it that way? All right, Peter. Well, uh, an OT Scientologist might agree with some of what you said, but there's an awful lot here that isn't exactly how Hubbard describes it. 
But we've never really gone over in detail some of the scriptural writings from L. Ron Hubbard on this matter. So I thought I might pull them up and go over some of this with you, uh, just so you get it straight from the source. And also to try to clarify this, this body fate in business, because it is a little confusing. You know, you're absolutely right in your question. We are all spiritual entities, independent units of thought and uh, behavior called a thetan. And that's how L. Ron Hubbard describes us, right? We don't have a soul. We're not ghosts or spirits. We are thetans. And thetans are made up of theta, and that's about as far as he went into it. And thetans can create, uh, and they create by will, by intent. Uh, in Scientology, this is called a postulate. And, uh, and that's how they go about making all of this and running a body and having energy and flows and all this crap. It all comes from these basic springboard ideas that there is a spiritual entity called a Thetan, and that is who you really are. Uh, deep, deep, deep down, you are a composite being, actually, here on Earth, composed of a Thetan or a spirit, right? And you have a mind, and you, uh, and you control a body. And uh, the body is the temporary thing. And the mind is really just all the pictures and collected ideas and machinery and all that stuff you've put together in order to think or process information or remember things and all that kind of stuff. But the Thetan himself is just this little, you know, spiritual sprite. So what are body Thetans all about? Well, Hubbard wrote a bulletin in 1968 called Character of Body Thetans. And I'm going to read from this. It says, body Thetans are just Thetans. When you get rid of one, he goes off and possibly squares around, picks up a body, or admires daisies. Okay, so you're, you're exorcising these body thetans on the OT levels of Scientology. It's the core practice of what Scientology is all about, is getting rid of these body thetans. It's a big, big deal in Scientology, and this is what the upper levels of Scientology are all about. And this is all hush-hush, super confidential. Nobody can ever talk about this or know anything about this because they're not ready for it, can't be aware of it. And it'll just ruin their lives if they find out about this before they're ready. So here I am letting you know all about it. And none of you are ready. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, he is, in fact, a sort of cleared being, Hubbard says. This, this body Thetan who, who is exorcised is kind of a cleared being. He cannot fail to eventually, if not at once, regain many abilities. Many have been asleep for the last 75 million years. Okay, just to answer your question there about are you going to remember your time as a body Thetan and Leonardo da Vinci's toe? No, you're not, because you as a Thetan were never that. Body Thetans have been in this degraded state for a very long time, and the whole Xenu story is important in Scientology, not because of Xenu, but because of the catastrophe that created the clustering of the body Thetans in the first place. And this is the really important part of this. This is why when, when you talk to OT Scientologists about the Xenu stuff, you know, that wasn't really the most important part of the experience for them. What was important about it was, holy shit, my, me, I'm a Thetan cover. I mean, they all know they're a Thetan going on up the line, but suddenly, wait a minute, what? Body Thetans? What? You know, nobody has a clue about this in Scientology until you get onto those confidential levels. And this is a really big reveal. It's huge. People in Scientology's minds are blown when they find out about this. So a body Thetan responds to any process, any Thetan responds to. 
some body thetans are suppressive and have to be dealt with that way. Um, yeah, okay, and he goes on to say a few more things here. Um, but body thetans basically just hold one back, he says. Uh, you will continue to be you. You inside can, of course, separate out body thetans, and so solo auditing is the answer. And this is why when you get to those levels, you're in a room with an e-meter auditing these body thetans yourself, and you are telepathically contacting them because they are glommed onto you. They're literally connected to you. They're right there, easy to reach, easy to talk to, thetanically, so to speak, and then wake them up send them on their way. And there's various processes that Hubbard developed in order to do this. And we're not going to get into that today, but there's different ways of doing this. Okay, now I referred to clusters or clustering of thetans, and this is where the body thetans really come from. What Hubbard talks about, and I, I couldn't find the exact uh, reference on this point, but because um, it's uh, you got to dig through all kinds of stuff to, to dig this stuff up, but I'll just explain to you that where, it, where these body thetans come from is some kind of devastatingly powerful explosion or traumatic incident or, uh, you know, engram in Scientology parlance. There's a really, really bad thing that happens, and all these thetans are there for it. They're not over on the other side of the galaxy. They're all located here. Uh, okay, I'll give you a, a, a pretty pretty good example of the kind of power that I'm talking about that would require that would be required to pull this kind of thing off. And I'll use a simple, stupid example of Star Wars. Okay, Alderaan getting blown up by the Death Star in the first Star Wars movie. That kind of incident would cause some of the Thetans on Alderaan, some of the people who die in that explosion their spiritual selves just collapse. They just, it's too much, too much energy, too much trauma, too much experience, and they just collapse and they cluster. They kind of get stuck together. And that clustering of these uh, unconscious, uh, traumatized, asleep thetans is where body thetans come from because they just glom on to some Phaeton who is operating, who is still living as though, you know, he's able to or she, you know, there's no gender here because uh, Phaetons are just spirits. But, you know, that Phaeton is still operating. It did not, for whatever reason, succumb to the trauma and the, and the energy of whatever it was that caused this clustering to happen. But a whole bunch of Phaetons did. They just succumbed and they just gave up. And stopped really being uh, much of of anything, and clustered in together and glommed onto this main Phaeton, and that would be you now in the here and now. That Phaeton they all glommed onto, that's you, and you've survived up through the line and gotten bodies and died and gotten bodies and died over and over and over again, millions and millions of times, and here you end up on planet Earth, and you're still somehow operating. And you still have, you know, and, and Hubbard explains this in terms of theta endowment, that some thetans are bigger or more powerful than others. And so, you know, kudos to you if you're even here on planet Earth, this prison planet that we've all been stuck on for millions of years. Kudos to you if you're still aware and awake enough to even be able to walk around and, and have thoughts. It's kind of like that. That's how OTs think about you. 
uh, in Scientology is they think, you know, you're just lucky to still be around at all and have any awareness because these body thetans have totally checked out. They're they're just kind of unconscious in, in the closet of your head. And they wake up from time to time and maybe send signals to you, give you thoughts or ideas about things uh, that aren't you. But, you know, you ever have those weird thoughts like, where'd that come from? Why am I thinking that? Hubbard says that's because body thetans. You didn't think that. A body thetan did. So that's kind of where, you know, some of that comes from. So just checking here. Yeah, that's that's basically it. That's kind of how the whole thing works. And there you go. Let's. Since you always have some movie wallpapers on your screens and your Lego models standing around, I was wondering if you ever did a video on that in terms of how you view superheroes as a way of cultism and glorification of even bad character traits, indoctrination of the masses, as in Superman knows what's good for you, and similar. I'm not much a fan of most of the Marvel stuff since it's always so over the top, but I can see some value for this discussion in some of the Batman movies, for instance, or the boys' satirical slash cynical take on the subject. And completely unrelated, is your Lego obsession just tied to building stuff from the films, or do you consider yourself a real AFOL adult fan of Lego? All right, let's thank you very much for asking me about two of my favorite subjects I get to combine into one, which is talking about Lego and talking about fascism or coercive control and, and how superheroes might fit into that model. And I'm only using fascism because uh, I'm sort of channeling Alan Moore a little bit there. He had some recent quotes and comments about the comic book industry and movie industry because he's the guy who originally wrote uh, V for Vendetta and The Watchmen. And he has since divorced himself from any of that and thinks Hollywood totally corrupted his intent, and people totally missed the message of what he was trying to get across using superheroes and a superhero format to tell his stories back in the 80s, and he's kind of moved on and given up on that. Uh, and he talks about the fact that, you know, people who can get too involved in that or get, you know, really into the mythos and thinking patterns, you could say, or the thought processes behind superheroes and the and the mythology and the the sort of ideology of it can easily fall into a fascist state of mind and and I don't know that that's so true automatically but I will say that when you imbue too much power or control or ability uh, to these higher beings that we call superheroes and you give over responsibility for your life and your uh, and how the world works to these super power beings and you think that that's actually how the world should work or you kind of think that's cool or this is how things should be you can very very easily slip over into a totalist sort of authoritarian control structure very very quickly and this was hinted at this was talked about in um uh, sort of displayed a bit in Batman's concerns about Superman in the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice movie that uh, was put together by DC, but it wasn't really um, told really well. And it seemed a bit off-putting because it was kind of weird in that context of Batman versus Superman. But, you know, one of them is a, is, is a fascist controller and that's, you know, that kind of thing. I, I hope you guys are following along with what I'm talking about there. This is also very much, like you said in your question, brought up in the boys uh, and I love the boys for that because they really did kind of confront this problem of why do we have this uh, ideal picture, this idealized 
model where we're going to have these supercharged beings take over control of, of society so that we can have a better controlled society, a better uh, a society better to live in. And, you know, in what way does that work when, you know, you're, when, when people who have way more power than you do uh, are, are the ones dictating your, you know, your daily lives? We don't want any of that. And, and, and that kind of thinking can lead one to the other is the fear here. It's a, there is a, there is a, arguably a slippery slope argument being put forward there, but, um, but some people go for that and, uh, and it's something worth thinking about at least, you know, do we really want a Superman around? Well, the boys did a great job, the, t- the TV series, especially in season one of showing, well, what happens if Superman goes off the rails? What happens if Superman starts being human and having an ego and having desires and and ideas that are not conducive to the public good? And what if he starts using his powers and abilities in ways that are oppressive to people and their freedom? Who's going to stop him? How do you even stop him? I mean, you'd be terrified of uh, of any sighting of the man. I mean, he could find you anywhere. He could do anything to you, and no one can stop him. You know, and so to, so when you look at the dark side of this picture, I guess is where I'm going with this. You can see it can get pretty dark pretty fast if you really start taking these idealized versions of humans and you put it into the real world. You you know, it doesn't work so good. And yet, at the same time, there is the positive side of this, which is that we need heroes and all that. All right, so I'm kind of going on a, a, a roll here about the role of superheroes in our society. And you asked me about Lego, so let me bring it back down to that. Well, you did get into the glorification of bad ter- character traits here in your question. Um, but no, none of this, none of my Lego <laughs> connection with any of this has anything to do with, with fascist superheroes and, and ideology and, and cultural structures. Um, I just like Lego. I think it's fun. I think they're fun like the same way that building models is fun. And I am an adult fan of Legos. I am officially fully claiming that title. I absolutely am in that camp. I find Legos a lot of fun, uh, not to play with, but to build models and create with. And that's that's what I do with those. And there was an idea very early on uh, before I got into all this Scientology criticism stuff on YouTube and started going on at a mad rate about destructive cults. I had the idea of actually doing creative video work with stop motion animation work with, with Lego spaceships and, and, uh, and stuff like that. And I was going to do some videos on that line. Not going to do them anymore. I don't have any time for that. That is an all-consuming thing. And I, this is instead where my life has gone. So you still see remnants of that in, you know, some of the background and backdrops of some of my videos. And I am all in on, um, you know, the positivity and the positive messaging that comes out of superhero genre. Um, I, I'm not into, you know, really thinking about the dark side of that a whole lot. The boys got me thinking on that. Alan Moore got me thinking on that. And I was like, oh, yeah, boy, they really got a point there. There is a deeper level at which you can consider our cultural myths and the effects that those myths can have on our collective thinking. And um, and I think there's some good points to be made there, but I don't want to suddenly become, you know, viewed as anti-superhero or anti, you know, comic book or something. That's not at all where I'm going with any of that. I, I think these are, you know, creative outlets and, and useful to our society. 
Um, so I don't know. We got to kind of go on a little tear there about that. You, you know, you all let me know what you think, but uh, there's some there's some thoughts for you. Ronald Corn Fairy. While you were in the Sea Org, were there ever times when subordinates would talk negatively about superior officers? Were you in any sort of cliques where you felt comfortable criticizing things without fear of having a knowledge report written up on you? Can you think of anyone that you were in with that would regularly scrutinize the way things were going that you could envision potentially blowing in the future? Thanks. All right, and for those who don't know, blowing in that sense is uh, is a Scientology term for leaving without authorization or taking off or going AWOL. It has, it's not any other definition of the word blowing. All right, so that being said, um, what I wanted to say on this is that it would come in waves, okay? So, so no, the answer to the question is no, I didn't have clicks of people that we would sit around and have bitch sessions about our seniors. You just didn't get away with that for very long in Scientology. And you learn early on that the enforcement mechanisms of Scientology come in waves and they come often enough that they keep you during the times when they're not around, when security is not watching over your shoulder, when KRs are not being written, you learn to keep your damn mouth shut because that kind of stuff can start up at any moment. And you say the wrong thing, you hint at the wrong thing to the wrong people, you get snitched on, ethics starts paying attention to you, starts investigating you, and you are in all kinds of hot water right away. And talking and bitching and moaning about your seniors sounds easy, sounds like no big deal, uh, until Scientology ethics officers get hold of you, and then suddenly you are a criminal and a scumbag, and nattering is the word they use in Scientology for complaining or fault-finding, and you are a nattery asshole who needs to sit down and write all of your overts and withholds and crimes because clearly you have them because you wouldn't be nattering if you didn't, you see. And so so you might not have that happen to you maybe once a year, but the rest of the year you're like, it ain't worth it, man. I'm not going there. There's no reason for me to, to share my problems about my senior with Joe because next month Joe's just going to be reporting on me. You know, maybe right now you and Joe are cool. But what happens after you have an argument or an upset or Joe goes gets transferred somewhere else and somebody else is now on him and they're telling him, you better write up all your crimes. And he's got, you know, got this guilty conscience about complaining about his senior. So he writes down in his write-ups, oh yeah, Chris and I were complaining and nattering up a storm about, you know, our senior Bill and we hated Bill and Chris has probably got all kinds of crimes on this, as do I, and I'm taking responsibility for mine, but nobody ever confronted Chris on his and that report gets over to ethics and you're toast. So you learn over time, that's gonna happen to you if you don't keep your damn mouth shut. And so you become incredibly cautious about who you share what with. And you got to know somebody for a good long time and really establish a strong relationship with them before you're going to feel free in a cultic situation with sharing complaints about, you know, seniors or management or leadership or anything like that. Even your own wife, uh, somebody you just don't have freedom of speech to share all of your ideas with uh, because she'll write you up. You know, my wife sure did uh, lots and lots of times, right, for, uh, for you know, bitching and moaning about stuff. So that can happen anytime in those cultures or in those little bubble worlds. And that's why 
you learn the lesson to just go with the flow, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, and try not to get noticed. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. Why do you think Tom Cruise hasn't gotten married since he and Katie Holmes got divorced in 2012? It's not like he has a shortage of women that would be interested. I think it's probably an issue of trust with Tom Cruise. I mean, he's had three wives now. That's a lot. That's a lot of marriages. And, uh, and every one of them have, have failed. He, uh, he blew off Mimi. He blew off Nicole. Uh, Katie escaped from him. I mean, this guy doesn't do well with women. And uh, he's, you know, good looking and charismatic and has all the money and has all the power. But who cares? He's a dick. And so I think any woman worth her salt can see through him at a personal level pretty quickly at this point. I mean, he has an awful lot of relationship baggage that he brings with him. And I think that's why you don't see him getting, uh, getting married again. Liam Mullen. Why are seniors in the Sea Org called sir, regardless of their gender? Hubbard certainly wouldn't have learned that during his time in the Navy, nor would a female officer today be called sir. In fact, to do so deliberately would almost certainly result in a reprimand or more severe disciplinary action for blatant insubordination or disrespect. While we're on the subject, what would happen in the Sea Org if one purposefully dropped or omitted sir? Okay, Liam, well, the Church of Scientology Sea Organization is not the Navy. It is L. Ron Hubbard's bizarre, twisted version of the Navy. And in that bizarre, twisted version, women are called sir. And that's really, I swear to God, all the reasoning there is behind it is because L. Ron Hubbard said officers are referred to as sir, and he never said female officers are referred to as ma'am. Uh, period. End of story. That's how it is. And so that's, um, that's Scientology for you. As far as uh, if you omit or drop the sir and you have an officer, a female officer in front of you who is very self-aware of her rank and prestige and position and demands that from you, you are going to definitely hear about it, and uh, and you could be punished for that. So kind of exactly backwards to how things are in, in, in the real Navy, but you know what? What else is new? <laughs> there you go. Shimoda Tala. It took me a couple of years after getting out of the cult I was in to stop believing in reincarnation long after dropping other beliefs. Did you continue to believe in that after leaving Scientology since they also believe in it, albeit in a different way? No, it didn't take any time at all for me to drop that belief. I, as I've said many times, I have maintained spiritual hopes. You know, the idea that there could be a spiritual existence or something that goes on afterwards and we don't really just end when our, you know, when we shed our mortal, mortal coil, so to speak, um, you know, appeals to me. I like that idea of continuing on and not dying, but I have to face the facts that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that that would be the case and plenty of evidence against it. And, I, you know, and so what are you going to do? I, I decided that, my, you know, for me, it's best to not think that way and not uh, believe that way. And so I don't. And I, I dropped all that pretty much like a hot potato after I got out of Scientology. All right, folks, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me rant on here. This was, has been our show. I hope my answers were entertaining, informative, and educational, as always. I really do. And, uh, of course, feel free to leave any comments, suggestions, feedback, whatever, in the comments section. I do see it. And, uh, and I always generally appreciate it, especially if it's worded in such a way that you're not trying to make me out to be some 
you know, nefarious jerk. I, I really don't like that very much because I really am doing this with the best of intentions. Uh, so that all being said, thanks for coming around and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.